0: Singing together, is it not? It's also wonderful and a blessing to be here to hear from the Word of God. Uh, The gentleman, Mike Ireland, who's about to speak, uh, was the preacher at the Westside Congregation in Searcy, Arkansas for a long time. I was there for about seven years and got to sit and listen to him every Sunday. And so I can speak from experience when I let you know right now that you're in for a treat. Uh, Mike has preached at a number of different congregations. I think he said he grew up in Texas, but had family in Kansas, went to school at, at Oklahoma Christian. He's been a missionary in Scotland. Uh, he's just got a wealth of great experience. He is currently a professor of Bible at Harding University, where he's been now for a number of years, teaching classes ranging from the history of the Bible to, the, to Christian home to a New Testament to preaching classes, you name it. And, and Mike has probably been able to teach on it before. So we are, again, in a real treat to hear him tonight. So I pray that you'll give him your attention. And uh, I'm confident that by doing so, you will go home having learned something, having been encouraged and better fitted for your service in the kingdom. We all want to remind you that if you have little ones who, who need to be dismissed, ages 3 through 7, now is the time to go do that, and they can head across the hallway for the little children's classes. Thanks.
1: Good evening. I consider it an incredible blessing and treat to be with you today and especially to be at this, uh, at this assembly. What great singing. Doesn't it make you wonder what uh, heaven is going to be like when uh, we get it so stirred up and excited about, about our singing here? I did tell the church at these points this morning. My father was born in Marion. And by the time I came along, my grandparents had moved to Florence and operated a little service station there. And so for all of my growing up years, we came to Wichita to visit uncles and aunts and then would go up to to Florence. And so I feel as though I have some kinship with the city, although it's only been very infrequently that I've been back in the years since. But it is a great pleasure, a great honor. Uh, I consider it to be here this evening and share this time with you. If you will open your Bible... The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. In Deuteronomy, chapter 6, we are going to read from there and study primarily from there uh, this evening. Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now, before we say something about that, I want to begin with just a few general observations. Observation number one is that the Bible does not say very much about the specifics of home and family, like many of us would like for it to do. Now, it certainly says plenty. It doesn't leave us in doubt, but it, there are a number of topics that it does not address. For example, it doesn't say anything about adoption. It doesn't say whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. We'd assume it's a good thing, but my point is it is one subject the Bible doesn't address. It doesn't say anything about what a traditional family is. It doesn't say anything about whether uh, what happens when dad stays at home and mom goes to work. In other words, there are a lot of specific things that are going on in our culture today about which the Bible does not specifically have something to say. And I say that on the front end because I realize that we make up a wide array of experiences and a wide array of scenarios and situations, and we need to be really slow and cautious before we start judging and condemning each other because we have not, uh, we don't have something that looks traditional. Children today grow up in a wide variety of families. In fact, the word family doesn't even mean the same thing as it used to. Used to, you could get up and you could say family and everybody immediately thinks mom, dad and 2.3 kids. That's not the way it is anymore. We have single-parent families, we have blended families, we have step-families, and then we go into the whole array of people who just live together and may or may not have children, and those who uh, 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 are of the same sex and they have children, and we have such an array of things in our culture. So we definitely live in a time uh, quite unusual compared to, uh, to our ancestors. And so all of that needs to be taken into consideration. I'm not suggesting the Bible doesn't address any of that. I'm just saying there are some things the Bible does not speak to. And we need to give each other as much encouragement and support as we can because a lot of people are just trying to do the very best they can in the circumstances they have. I know so many grandparents that are raising their grandkids. An uh, incredible kind of world that we live in. Observation number two is that you won't get any help from the culture. As a parent, you're not going to get any help raising your kids. The government's not going to help you because it doesn't make those kinds of decisions. It advances us in the direction of godly homes. And our media, our uh, TV and programs and so on, I mean, when the lead programs are scandal, mistresses, revenge, uh, pretty little liars and things like that, you can tell that we're not headed in the right direction. So if you're going to have a godly home, it's going to be because you're intentional about it and not something that you gain from the culture in which you live. In fact, if you didn't go to church, you might never hear anything regarding having a godly family. Because our culture isn't going to promote that, and it's not going to help you. Observation number three, when you talk about home and family, you automatically talk about a sensitive subject. Sensitive subject. There are some of you who, when you think about home, you only have bad memories. And it is not my interest tonight, not my intent, to try to, uh, to create any pain. There are a great many of you who are in the throes of parenting now, and it may be with small kids, it may be with teenagers, it may be with grown children, but in some way, uh, you have heartaches in all of that. Not my intent to try to, to generate any pain there. I have lost two children. My wife and I had seven. That is, we had three, we adopted four. And the four all had special needs. One of those, our daughter Mandy, had breast cancer. She moved into our home when she was 32 years of age. She had given us two grandchildren, and we cared for her in her last days before her death. Ten days before she died, her brother Jeremy, Mandy was two, Jeremy was four when we adopted them. Ten days before Mandy died, Jeremy was murdered in his sleep. Murderer has never been found. We had a funeral for both of them at the same time. Talking about marriage and family and home is not one of the easiest things I do. I also have a child, just so that you will know, uh, who is a prodigal. He is a prodigal in the sense that, uh, that he is much of the time jobless and homeless. He has seen more of America than I have. He's been across it three or four times. He has had a lot of jobs, and a lot of times he didn't have a job. And he's had places to sleep, and a lot of times he didn't have a place to sleep. We have great relationship, and we maintain contact. It's not the life I would have chosen for him. And needless to say, my heart aches for him all the time, but it's the life he chose. Do you know that there are parents that I used to would have judged that I find great kinship with now? I didn't realize there were so many families, so many parents with prodigal children or children out there like that until I had one of my own. I didn't know there were so many parents who had had children murdered until I had one of my own. I didn't know there were so many people out there with hurting, breaking hearts over their children until I reached the place in life where I had a broken heart myself. So anytime you talk about home and family... You're going to talk about a really sensitive subject to a great many people. It's just like opening a wound. I'm not interested in opening a wound. I'm not here to make you feel guilty. But sometimes we do need to remind each other of what we're about. Observation number four. The purpose of family has never changed. It is to provide the essential needs of each member of the family, it is to be there to help nurture and, and grow the emotional and physical and uh, mental well-being of that person, and beyond that, it is to help that person to grow and develop spiritually, and that's the most important part, and we underscore that because we know that when God created us, when he brought the man and the woman together, that of all the things he envisioned, that was at the top of the list. Now, surely God envisioned that they were going to be companions. We know that to be the case because the man is alone and he wants the man to have a companion. So we know that's part of it. We know that he wants them to bring pleasure to each other because that's stated as well. We know that he intends this to last because he frames it in a in a permanent kind of way. We know that he has all of those things in mind. But don't you think that at the top of his list was the fact that these two people will help each other since life is primarily a spiritual journey. Now, if you can be spiritual people, which is what the Bible emphasizes, then you can have a spiritual family. And it is that spiritual family that I want to talk about tonight we want to ask the question, what does that look like? And we want to answer it. We're going to do it with Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we're going to begin with verse 6 itself. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Who is he talking to? Well, the very next verse will help you with that because he says, now impress them on your children. So it's pretty obvious he's talking to the adults. The next verse is, is what they're to do with respect to their children. This is to the adults, to the parents. It's to be in your hearts. In this home, spirituality is first in the parents. Now, I think there are a lot of parents who have turned the spiritual aspect of their children's lives over to other people. Now, I'm grateful for the church. I've been in the church all my life, grew up in the church. Uh, My dad was a Christian. My mom was a Christian, so I've never known it any other way. I've been very, very blessed. But it's not the job of the church to do the job of the parents. Whatever the church does is just icing on the cake. There is no instruction anywhere that says it's the church's responsibility to educate our children or to take them over in some way so as to relieve the parents. Now, I'm totally supportive of the educational program, and my children have had great Bible teachers through the years, and I'm grateful for every one of them. And I'm grateful for the youth ministers that have been in my children's lives. They've no doubt have fed them a1,000 tons of pizza, and they have met on a million occasions and sang a lot of songs, and they've done a lot of wonderful things together. And I'm grateful for all of that, but it's not their job to do my job. It is not their job to do my job. We convey the wrong ideas sometimes to our children. We send them a message. When we want to convey to them the importance of spirituality, we nonetheless send the wrong message. We we say to them, you don't need to worry about anything. Trust God. And then they see us worry and take pills and everything else in our anxiety. And we tell them, you need to read your Bible. They never see us read it. We say, you know, you need to be in church. And then we let everything from fishing to fatigue keep us away. And then we criticize the preacher and the song leader and the deacons and the elders, the Bible class teacher, and then we can't figure out why it is they don't want to go. I mean, we, just, we do things that convey the wrong message. Now, I don't think we ought to pretend with them, but I think we ought to realize that they are soaking up like little sponges everything that we are and say. We set the tone in the home. Children come into the world, they don't know, they don't have any biases, they don't have any prejudices, they get all of that. From adults. They get all of that from adults. You teach them how to see other people. You teach them how to see the authorities like the police and the government. They get that from you. They don't come wired in some way with that. They just listen to you. And I'll say in a minute, the reason why is because when they're young in those formative years, they think you are it. You are a superhero. And you better enjoy it because it's the only time in your life you're ever going to be a superhero only time. Little boys learn how to treat women by watching the way dad treats mom. Little girls learn how to treat men by watching the way mom treats dad. That's the way it is. Now, I said that thing about when they're young and in their formative years, and they do. They think you know everything and you can do everything and you're just wonderful and it's a wonderful time. But you know, the time's going to come when they're going to realize you don't know everything. Not only do you not know everything, you, don't, you can't do everything. And not only can you not do everything, you don't even do everything right. And you know what's important in that moment? What's important in that moment, which is most definitely going to come, what's important in that moment is that they know that you are genuine. You see, you and I can accept each other as long as we're genuine. You can accept me and my flaws. I can accept you and your flaws as long as we believe that each other is genuine. We're really trying. We're really serious about this. But at any point where I live in such a way or behave in such a way as to convey to you that I'm not really genuine, I'm just sort of playing at it and going through the motions. At that point, you're not going to have a lot of use for me. You're going to see me as a hypocrite. I'm going to tell you straight out, that's exactly why we lose a lot of young people. They go to church with their parents, but they watch their parents. Their parents argue all the way up to the church building, get out, put smiles on, come in the building. They see that. They can see hypocrisy. It's not first in the parents. It's not in the parents at all. And sooner or later, they're going to come to the awareness that mom and dad are going through the motions. They're pretending They do all these things and they say all these things, but they don't live that way. Why would they want that? In this home, spirituality is first in the parents. He says, let it be in your hearts. And then he says, impress them on your children. What does that mean? If I told you to impress something on somebody, wouldn't you think that means emphasize it? So in this home, spirituality is emphasized. It's not tacked on. Sunday isn't a day we just tack on to the week. Now, do you have any plan for conveying spirituality to your children? Do you have any plan, any strategy? I'll tell you, most people don't. They'll say, well, we take them to church, and if that's the best you can do, you're in bad shape. That's not going to do it. You live in a culture in which there is a a tsunami sweeping over us that is secular and pluralistic and hedonistic. And we think because we spend two two hours a week in the church that our children are somehow going to be empowered to stand in the face of a tsunami. It is not going to happen. If the best thing you can say is, our plan is to take them to church, then you need to get a plan. <clears throat> now, I'm going to stop right here and do an aside, which is for the benefit of those that are not married. <clears throat> and that is to say, the reason why you ought to marry a Christian, I mean, there are a lot of reasons. So let me, well, let me frame it this way. The reason you ought to marry a Christian, first of all, is because it means in your marriage, the two of you have the same experience. That is, in the single greatest experience of life, you have something in common. The greatest experience of life is obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. You have that in common. You marry someone that's not a Christian, it means that you have that great experience, but they don't have that experience. And that's going to affect your marriage. It's going to affect your home. The second reason is you have the same master. It means every morning you wake up, every morning you wake up, you both are obeying the same master. And that makes a lot of difference because if you're obeying the master and they are not obeying the master, it's going to have all kinds of implications for your marriage. And then there is the third one, which is the future. Sooner or later, one of you is going to bury the other. One of you is going to sit beside the bed of your spouse as they die. Now, I know we've all got this idealistic thing. We're going we're to hold hands and walk along the beach into the sunset and drop dead together. I know that's what you think. But it's not likely to happen. One of you is going to sit there and hold the hand of the other one while they're dying. And there is in that moment, nothing is going to be more important to you than whether or not they're a Christian. And you get to see them again. You need to think about that at the front end. I know people say, well, and I had students that did this and I was hired at Harding to teach courses in marriage and family. And I have students, I'd say this, say, oh, yeah, but we're going to convert them. You know, the national rate, the national rate for converting someone to your own faith is only 20%. Only one out of five marriages. Is it the case that one spouse converts to the other spouse's religion? Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, I'm going to be one of the five. I know you're thinking that. But I can't tell you, and any of the other ministers here could do the same, how many funerals I've spoken at through the years in which one spouse, a Christian, was burying their spouse who was not a Christian and how they told of all of the effort they made through all of the years. And it never worked. Now, I... Went on the side there, and the problem with that aside thing is it throws me off where I am. We're talking about emphasizing <clears throat> emphasizing spirituality. When the two of you are of the same faith, the same goals in life, headed the same direction, it's a lot easier to emphasize spirituality in your home. And when you're not headed together in the same direction, it's a tougher job. Now, some of you are going to have to stop and begin with a plan. You don't have any plan. He says, impress it on your children. What plan do you have to do that? You may recall in the story of Job, that Job, it says in the opening chapter, would go out in the early morning. He'd go off to this place and he would offer sacrifices for his children. And he did that, he said, lest they have sinned against God, so he would do that in their behalf. Now imagine the scenario, here are the children sitting at breakfast, and one of them says, where's dad? And they say, oh, you know where dad is, he's out there on the hillside offering sacrifices for us again. Now is there any way those children could have grown up and not know That in their father's mind, the single most important thing was their being right with God. Is there any way they could have missed that? I don't think so. Is there anything you do in your family that says to your children that being right with God is the single most important thing? And if you tell me you go to church, I'm going to tell you that's not enough. That's not enough. You're supposed to be conveying to them that in the whole of life, for every kind of choice of occupation and every topic that could be of interest and every goal that they might embrace, that for everything there is on the planet Earth, the single most important thing is to walk with God. Now, what are you doing? What is your plan that is going to emphasize that? I'd say my experience is, embarrassingly, that most of us don't really have one. We just kind of think that by going to church and and just sort of living in front of them, that they're just going to get it. It'd be great if it worked that way. Wouldn't it be great if when you told your kids things, they just did it? I'm sure God has swung his head several times that when's Mike going to get it? Even when God says it, we don't get it. Where, where's the emphasis going to come from? And then, number three, you'll notice that he says that you talk about it when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. That sounds like all the time. It is a daily expression. A daily expression. You've got to teach your kids that you can't skip a rock across a pond, you can't eat a slice of watermelon. You can't play on the playground. You can't eat a bowl of beans. You can't do anything without rubbing up against God. Now, Is that what you're teaching them? Everything is connected to God. You have never in your life talked about a single subject that wasn't connected to God. Now, you might not have connected it to God, but it was connected to God. But we often live as though nothing is connected to God until we get in here. That's not going to do it. And I'll tell you one of the best ways. I'm going to tell you several ways, but one of the best ways is is questions. Kids ask so many questions. They want to know why fish eat worms. They want to know where that hose is going. Why is that guy up in that tree? I mean, they want to know everything. And you have the opportunity as a parent to answer their questions and tie it to God. We just got to learn to do that. Our son Scott is our oldest. We have uh, our oldest uh, is Scott. He lives in Korea. He uh, went to Pepperdine. He majored in uh, Oriental languages, married a Korean girl. And now we don't get to see that grandchild because they're way far away. That was a really poor move on his part, but he didn't ask us. When he was about four or five years old, we were driving down the highway. I don't know where we were going, but he was sitting in the back seat there, and he leaned up and asked my wife. Deborah was pregnant, and he had figured out that babies grow inside the mother. He just hadn't figured out how they get inside. So he leaned up a little ways, and he asked her that very question. And I wiped my brow, said thank you to the Lord, because he didn't ask me. And then I waited to see what she would say. And she said, Scott, God has a special plan for that. And I thought, man, you have married the right woman. We got about a mile down the road. Scott seemed perfectly happy. And I thought, well, that's great. He's, He's really content with that. We got about a mile down the road. Scott leans up a little bit and he says, mom, I bet you know the plan, don't you? Now, my illustration of that, which has been a family story ever since it took place, is to point out that you can bring God into the answering of every question. Every question. Now, I'll tell you why it's important. Now, we 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 use the dinner table. This is back when people had dinner tables and ate at dinner together. But we'd use the dinner table. We told our kids there's nothing we won't talk about. You bring it up, we'll talk about it. Now, obviously, sometimes you have to delay conversations with older children. uh, But for the most part, we just said anything you bring up, we're going to talk about because we want you to know that in this home, we'll talk about any subject, any subject. Now, the reason why I think that's important, and answering the questions is important, is two things. Number one is they're going to get the answer somewhere. They're going to ask the questions, and they're going to get the answer somewhere. What God does is he says, you get first shot. You get to be the people on the spot. When your kids come along, they're going to ask all these questions at the beginning. You get to be the individual who's there to answer them. But if you don't answer them, The questions will not go away, and somebody later on is going to answer them. And the problem is, they may not give the kind of answer you'd want given. But they're still going to get it. They're going to get the answer somewhere. And the other part of that is that it sets the stage for later on when you really want them to ask questions. For example, when they're teenagers. And you got all kinds of things you'd like to share with them. And you'd give anything if they would come in and say, Dad or Mom, what about this and what about that? And it would give you an open door to talk about things you now see happening and developing in their life. But if you didn't set the stage when they were young, they're not going to come ask you. Can you imagine? Here's a father. Gathers his teenage kids together in the living room, says, Okay, y'all sit down. We're gonna have a a little uh, little confab here, and I want you to ask me any question you want to about sex. Just go ahead, ask me. Do you think they're gonna ask him anything? They're not gonna ask him anything. They haven't they don't have that kind of history. They didn't grow up asking and talking to him about everything, and you don't just flip a switch and suddenly engage in that kind of conversation. He didn't set the stage for it when they were young, so they knew that they could always ask him. And so now you can't just create a conference and make that happen. You have to do that along the way. And consider the matter of prayer. Now, I know you pray in here, and I know your kids hear you. And I know, I, I'm going to assume you pray at the table and your kids hear you. Do they ever, do you ever pray any other time? Do they hear you pray over the struggles you have in the day? Do they hear you, they hear you express concerns about things at work or uh, in community or whatever. Do you ever pray about those things? Do those things ever become as real before God and before them as we're thankful for the food? Or bring us back to the next appointed time. Prayer is a great place for you to be able to convey to them that spirituality is a priority, but it's just a daily expression. I pray with you kids. I, I, we did, we tried a lot of different things. Some things work well. Some things don't. And we certainly are not any kind of perfect example. But all I, the only experiences I have are my own. So that's all I can share with you. But I'd drive my children to school, and every morning we'd pray on the way to school. And it was fun in the beginning because I'd say, okay, y'all close your eyes. And they'd look at me like, are you going to close yours? You're driving. But we would pray every single morning. Now, we had six kids to kind of together, and they all grew up. And then we momentarily lost our minds, and we adopted one more who is now 17. So we kind of had two families, as it were. We had six, and then we had an only child. Every one of them has the same experience. Prayed every morning on the way to school. I wanted them to know that every day, the best way to start the day, things we want to pray about, want to lay those before God, because it's an everyday thing. It's not just in here. We did things like every time we went on a trip, We'd all gather in the garage and we'd pray, and then we'd go on our vacation. We'd come back, we'd gather in the garage, and we'd pray again. I always prayed. My father taught me this. We did this at home when I was growing up. We always prayed at Christmas before anybody could open a gift. If you're not thankful to God. You don't need to be opening gifts. In other words, we just created places uh, outside the church building, as it were. We created as many opportunities as we could to pray about things so they would know. That it is a daily thing. It's not a Sunday thing. And just daily expressions. Now, my father was a wonderful man. And my parents were great parents. Good Christian people. But my dad was not a particularly expressive individual. Now, if he was unhappy, he expressed himself. And he could express himself when he was happy. But, I mean, in the general rule, he didn't say a lot. So I didn't grow up in a family where we said praise God and hallelujah and things like that, I mean, I don't think you have to, but it wasn't, I, did, I didn't grow up with a lot of being an expressive individual that way. We wanted that for our children, and I had to really, really work at that kind of thing. But my observation is that generally speaking, and you could be the exception, generally speaking, across the board in churches of Christ, we're not a very expressive people. And not only are we not expressive in here, we're not very expressive at home. I can pull my students in classes. How many of you grew up in a home where your mom and dad were very expressive about their faith? Very rare. Did they go to church? Oh, yeah, they went to church. Did they talk about God openly? Did they get up in the morning and say, wow, God made a beautiful day? Did they even say that? Why don't we talk about God? If we want our children to be filled with a sense of the priority of a spiritual life, why don't we speak about the very thing we say is a priority? We don't express ourselves. It is a beautiful day. It's God's day. He made the day. Uh, Beautiful sunset. God made the sunset. Just any kind of expression we can make. And I'm not talking about being the kind of person who can't say a sentence without saying God. I've been around people like that. They, they couldn't bend over and tie their shoes without mentioning God. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about in a natural way, calling attention to what God is doing, has done, will do as a daily thing. If the only time they ever hear it is in here, that is not enough. It's just not going to be enough to gird them. I'm going to tell you the culture of the world is too ugly, it's too strong, it's not enough. Not enough. There's an interesting story in Genesis, the story of Lot. Lot, you may recall, pitches his tent in the direction of Sodom. It sounds like he's just going to live out on the hillside. But the truth is, by the time you come to chapter 19, he's got a house in the city of Sodom. He's one of the men of the city because the men of the city meet at the gate, and he's one of those. So he has really moved into the life of Sodom so these two angels come, and they tell, tell him that God's going to destroy Sodom. You need to get your family together and get out of this place. And so he goes to his two sons-in-law. He's got two daughters, got two sons-in-law, and he says to them, he says, God's going to destroy this place. Do you know what the Bible says? It says they thought he was joking. Look at it, Genesis 19. They thought he was joking. Why would they think he was joking? I'll tell you why? Because there was nothing in Lot's life to suggest he's serious. They didn't know him as a man who was serious about God. So when he comes to talk to them about God and what God's going to do, they think it's a joke. Now I wonder this evening, you go home, take your family, set them down there in the living room and sit down in front of them, and start talking about God and sharing your heart. Are they going to look at you strangely? Are they going to think it's rather odd for you to behave this way because you never behave this way any other time? Or would they say, that's just dad, that's just mom, that's just the way they are, they're serious about God? They talk to us like that all the time. If you had to sit down and tell your family something from your heart about God, would they immediately realize, or would they immediately think something really strange is up? Because this is not the father-mother we know. Or would they say... That's just the way my parents are. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speed this long and close this way. This more, I confess, for the benefit of those who have children still at home. Tonight, when you tuck your little ones in, You rub their heads or tickle them or whatever it is you do when you tuck them in. I I want you to consider some things. Someday, this little boy or girl of yours is going to get married. Will they marry a Christian? I don't know how you feel about it right now, but it will be important to you then. Are you doing anything in their life to help them make the right decision? One day this little boy or girl of yours is going to give you grandchildren. And that will be special. I have 10 Will your child be a godly parent? Will they raise your grandchildren in a godly home? Are you doing anything right now in their life to help them move in that direction? It will be important to you then. One day this little boy, this little girl of yours, is going to receive the onslaught of everything the devil can throw at them. It could be a temptation to fornication. It could be a temptation to adultery after they're married. It could be a temptation to drugs. I don't know what it will be, but you and I both know that the devil wants your child. And they may look sweet and innocent right now, but they're going to grow up. And the devil's going to be after them. And he is going to be after them with everything he can. Are you doing anything right now in their life to help fortify them and gird them for when that attack comes? Because it's going to come. This little boy, this little girl of yours, whose knees you've bandaged and scraped elbows you've kissed and held in your lap when they cried and were injured and all of that, one day, because it's the way humans are, one day they're going to experience something traumatic. And it's going to be a car accident. It's going to be uh, the news of cancer. It's going to be something that's going to be threatening to their physical well-being. And you're going to want them to be able to have faith in God and for there to be a refuge for their soul when that time comes. Are you doing anything in their life right now to prepare them for what is most definitely going to come? One day, this little boy, this little girl of yours that you love so much, whose smile melts your heart, is going to die. It shouldn't happen that children precede their parents. And maybe that won't be the case with you, but the case remains. They're going to die. They're going to face death. They're going to have to grapple with it like humans do. Are you doing anything in their life right now to prepare them for what inevitably is going to happen? And this little boy, this little girl of yours is one day, like everyone in this room, going to stand before God. And it won't matter how much you love them. It won't matter how much time you invested in them. It won't matter how to it, what a good education you gave them. There are a hundred thousand things we emphasize that won't matter at all. But what will matter? is whether they have walked with God, it will be so important to you then. Are you doing anything, anything in their life right now to help them get ready to stand before God? What an awesome task. What a wonderful privilege. What a great blessing. We can't just assume because we meet here that this is enough. This is great, but it's not enough. Not enough. I know you love your children, and I know that more than anything, more than anything, you want them to be in heaven with you. What are you doing right now in their life that says to them, more than anything, I want you to be with me in heaven. We sing a song of encouragement, invitation, because we don't want to leave without giving, giving the opportunity for all of us to make a response one more time to the Lord and say, I want to be yours. If you're away from the Lord, your life is out of harmony with His will, you may be doing something, practicing something right now, you know, you know is wrong. God's not going to overlook it. It's just a matter of time. There are consequences that are coming. Now is the time to do something about that. If you're not a Christian, the best, greatest gift you give your children, Is a Christian life in front of them. You need to be able to say that. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come while we stand and sing.